0: The reading for the day comes from Joshua 2, 1 through 14. Joshua, Nun's son, secretly sent two men as spies from Shittim. He said, Go. Look over the land, especially Jericho. They set out and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab. They bedded down there. Someone told the king of Jericho. Men from the Israelites have come here tonight to spy on the land. So the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, Send out the men who came to you, the ones who came to your house, because they have come to spy on the entire land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Then she said, Of course the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. The men left when it was time to close the gate at dark, but I don't know where the men went. Hurry, chase after them, you might catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the flax stalks that she had laid out on the roof. The men from Jericho chased after them in the direction of the Jordan up to the fords. As soon as those chasing them went out, the gate was shut behind them. Before the spies bedded down, Rahab went up to them on the roof. She said to the men, "'I know that the Lord has given you the land. Terror over you has overwhelmed us. The entire population of the land has melted down in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Reed Sea in front of you when you left Egypt.' We have also heard what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan. You utterly wiped them out. We heard this, and our hearts turned to water. Because of you, people can no longer work up the courage. This is because the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now now I have been loyal to you. So pledge to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal loyally with my family. Give me a sign of good faith. Spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters, along with everything they own. Rescue us from death. The men said to her, We swear by our own lives to secure yours. If you don't reveal our mission— we will deal loyally and faithfully with you when the Lord gives us the land.
1: Good morning, Zao. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao MKE Church. I am really excited because today we are kicking off one of my favorite seasons of the year, Advent. And Advent is not just the season where everyone overloads on Christmas decorations and cookies and red Starbucks cups. It is a season of preparation. It's, it's really intentionally timed. You see, we actually think that Jesus would have been born probably sometime around the spring or summer, but we celebrate Christmas around the darkest night of the year. And so Advent, this time of preparation, is the season when the days are getting shorter and shorter, the darkness getting longer and longer, inviting us into mystery and storytelling and closeness. You see, summer around the campfire is for ghost stories, but in the winter, during Advent, we gather around the fire or the candles in the dark to tell stories of hope and inspiration. Darkness is an invitation to comfort and community Nothing's going to happen for a little bit. It's winter. Things are winding down. So it's a time to slow down and dream about potential. What will happen when the days break forth again? So there's a kind of anticipation, a gestation, if you will. And the earth is preparing itself. We think of winter seasonally as a kind of death. But like the seasons, all of the cosmos that God created is cyclical. God brings resurrection through death. We don't ever get to skip over it. And so the quiet death of winter is also the anticipation of new life. The way that God makes way for new things. For life, for eternal life, for Jesus, the one who brings a new and different kind of life. And so during Advent, we get... To to envelop ourselves in the darkness and mystery with joyful anticipation, thinking about what our new life can be like when Jesus comes into our lives. And we tell the stories, inviting Jesus to come over and over again into our lives to make things new. And so in this time, we are quite literally preparing for the Lord. And when I think about that phrase, prepare for the Lord, my mind always goes to prepare ye the way of the Lord. It's a scripture, and it's uh, from John the Baptist's story, but it's also a song in the musical Godspell, and it may have worked its way into your heart. If not, I hope it does through this series as we'll be singing it a bit together but as we prepare the way of the lord that phrase prepare ye the way of the lord to me it brings up john the baptist john the baptist wild haired wild outfitted cousin of jesus out in the wilderness preparing the way for jesus by standing against empire by resisting creating a revolutionary spirit but what about before that what comes before john in preparing the way for jesus jesus is grown by the time John is preparing? Well, before John, we get Mary. And thank God we get Mary, because there are so many ways that women get erased from the story of Jesus. But the scriptures make it impossible to ignore Mary. Well, Luke makes it impossible. You see, in all four of the gospels, Luke is the only one that centers Mary's experience as a young woman literally bringing Jesus into the world. Somehow in all of these narratives, men are central, but women are sidelined. And it, it makes me wonder, how is it possible that women are disappearing from birth stories? I am acutely aware that not all people who give birth are women. But come on. It's not like the scriptures that paper over women to pave the way for others are doing so to feature non-binary and trans people. It's cis men who end up taking center stage in all these birth and origin stories from Jesus' birth and Christmas to the origins of the universe. And it leaves us asking, where are the women? Because we know that God didn't decline to utilize the the power and beauty and efficacy of women in the story but they have been systematically erased. Patricia Lynn Riley writes about this in a way that really hits home for me and I'd like to share with you some of what she wrote. She says, there were no religious images in the churches or synagogues of our childhood that celebrated the birthing powers of women. According to religion's myths, the world was brought into being by a male God and woman was created from man. This reversal of biological process went unchallenged. Most of us didn't even notice the absence of the mother. Although we may not have been consciously aware of her absence in Bible stories and sermons, her absence was absorbed into our being and its painful influence was intensified when we observed the design of our parents' relationship and the treatment of our mothers by our fathers and brothers. Our families mirrored the hierarchical reality of the heavens. In a society that worships a male god, the father's life is more valuable than the mother's. The activities of a man's life are more vital and necessary than the mother's intimate connections with the origins of life. The Father is God. And taking those observations to heart, I think we are invited to go looking, to go searching for the mothers in Jesus' story. Not just Mary, certainly Mary, but beyond Mary. Who mothered Mary? Who mothered along the way? Who are the ancestors of Jesus whose experiences as women paved the way for Jesus the Liberator. This is our task this season in Advent, because though the scriptures have some major gaps and misogyny and patriarchy have heavily influenced how we receive the stories of Jesus— There are some ways that the Holy Spirit worked her magic to anchor women in the story and ancestry of Jesus in ways that we could not ignore or forget. In Jesus' genealogy, there are listed five women. One of them is Mary, but the other four are Rahab, Tamar, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, who we know from elsewhere as Bathsheba. The fact that these women were included in the genealogy at all is remarkable and countercultural and wild and powerful and exciting. But they are also notable for who they are. They are all outsiders, they are all ones who have had to fight their way in the world to come into their own against a lot of odds. They are survivors of trauma and violence. Two of them, foreigners, literal outsiders in the world of the Israelites. Two of them engaged in sex work, an absolute taboo in terms of holiness and purity. And one was queer. Four out of the five had either had sex or were accused of having sex outside of the bounds of marriage, which in that context could be punishable by death. They are not the only women who brought Jesus into the world, but they are the the women that scripture would not let you forget. The women that are lifted up as ancestors of Jesus. The women who prepared the way of the Lord. Hence our punny title, prepare she the way of the Lord. God. God the mother of us all, mothered us through these women, mothered Jesus into being through these women and so many. Jesus' ancestors and ancestors to all of us who join in the family of God. And I'm so excited to spend this season of preparation and mystery and wondering and darkness and hope in these stories, the stories of these women who paved the way for Jesus. And so, today we'll begin with Rahab. I'm curious if you've ever heard of Rahab, if Rahab's story is one you were told as a child or not. So please let me know in comments. Was this something you grew up with? Was Rahab featured at Vacation Bible School? I know many of us didn't grow up with any of these stories, but some have been steeped since birth. This is one that was really pretty missing in my upbringing. Perhaps because the adults in my life knew that it was kind of a problematic story. There are a lot of layers to unpack and the conclusions we draw from it are messy at best. So I'm curious, what are your impressions? Do you know of Rahab or has she been altogether erased because she was complicated? In Rahab's story, it begins with Joshua sending two spies to Jericho. Now Joshua is leading the Israelites. They have escaped slavery in Egypt, and they've been in the desert, wandering and wandering. But God has promised them the promised land. The only problem with that? There were people who lived in the promised land. They were called Canaanites. And so we have this really twisted history of the Hebrew people. The promised land, which involves conquering And colonizing only a generation out of slavery of their own experience and here we are back again with weapons and conquest and domination and so the Israelites are feeling particularly conquery right now and they are headed to what they feel like belongs to them and the only thing standing between them and their belonging is the people of Jericho but it is their own understanding of freedom and liberation. This is the hard part about Exodus, a broken people escaping slavery only to dominate and destroy others. This is fundamentally the story of humanity as we struggle to get free. The history told in our scriptures has a very matter-of-fact way about it, a sort of everybody was doing it kind of attitude. And so we're supposed to just root for the Israelites. That's God's team, right? And the scriptures portray the Israelites as being God's team and victory being delivered into their hands by God. But when we bring our true open spirits, our humble spirits to this text, we see that there are no heroes in these stories of conquest. The propaganda that worked its way into the Bible would try and convince us otherwise. But when we take that cosmic view, the view of God, the mother, we see her children warring over a place to live as an act of survival, but one that gives way to more death than life. So this is the setting for Rahab's story. Now, Rahab lives in Jericho. She's not an Israelite. She is a Canaanite, an outsider from Israel's standpoint. And so Joshua sends two spies to Jericho. And so these spies come. And according to the scripture that we read just a few minutes ago, the spies entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. It's so convenient that they found Rahab's place. I'm sure they played uno and drank tea we meet Rahab, and from here on in, she is actually the primary actor. This is really interesting, because in addition to being a sex worker, uh, and a woman, and a Canaanite, again, all total outsider statuses in, in the culture of the Israelites, but also in terms of scripture. And we see her as this primary actor. The commentary, um, which is, I feel what it truly is. Those little headings in your Bible that sometimes break things into sections, I call it commentary because it's an interpretation of what that passage is about. But in the Common English Bible, which is the translation we're using today, two of those headers in this section are Rahab takes action and Rahab sets terms. Rahab is in charge of this, and we, we meet this woman who has a voice, who makes choices in ways that not a lot of women in her context have been able to muster. It is exceedingly rare, and so it, that tells us to pay attention to who she is and what God is doing in and through this incredible person. Perhaps this really is a moment where the Holy Spirit broke through and wrote into Scripture something that couldn't be budged, couldn't be moved, so that the power of this woman would endure in the storytelling. Because Rahab is this ultimate other, Canaanite, sex worker, woman, she's immediately set up as a sort of anti-hero. We're supposed to view her as a complicated person, someone who is sinful and other and distant, and so it's supposed to surprise us when she has good qualities at all. But she's being othered in her own context as well. She lived on the outskirts of town, literally in the walls surrounding the city where one half of her house opened into the city, the other half out, outside of the city walls of Jericho into the wilderness. But she has built something for herself. Whatever it is, this place that she has that welcomes in these two spies, it's a business. It is probably a brothel, but perhaps even a tavern if she can take boarders to stay the night. So these spies, these bumbling spies who come to like scope out Jericho to see how they can dominate it, they head immediately for sex workers to be serviced and the king of Jericho finds out really quickly, which makes you wonder like, how bad are these spies at spying? Like, they seem pretty off-mission, and the next thing that happens in the text is it's like the king of the territory you were trying to be sneaky about found out you were here and exactly where you were. Not super great. So the king finds out and sends Rahab some orders, some direct orders from the king. Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come only to search out the whole land. And here we see Rahab make a decision. It's a very dangerous decision. She decides to defy her king, but perhaps from her own calculation, it's not as dangerous as betraying the spies. She is making an assessment. Who does she think is going to win in the battle between the Israelites and Jericho? Whose side is she on? She makes a choice and therefore an alliance. She hides the spies. Then, when questioned, she offers this explanation. Sure, men came to me. I don't know where they're from. And later they left. I don't know where they went. And I love this, because it's so tongue-in-cheek for her to say all of that as a sex worker, as a woman running a brothel. It reminds me of the actress Madeline Kahn from *Blazing Saddles. She plays a character called Lily von Stupp. And Lily Von Stupp is a dance hall performer who sings about how tired she is from her sexual encounters with local men. One of her lines is, they're always coming and going and going and coming and always too soon, right girls? And I I picture Rahab as portrayed by Madeline Kahn just leaning in the doorway a la Lily Von Stupp saying, you're asking me if men have been here? She suggests that the king's men pursue them quickly. Get out of here, go, go beyond the gates. You'll, you'll surely catch them, they couldn't have left that long ago. Meanwhile, the spies are actually upstairs hiding under stalks of flax, which gives you even more insight into who Rahab is because Not only is she running this business, this brothel, perhaps a tavern, but she's got a flax business on the side. Like, she is owning the life that she has. So she rustles up these spies from under the the flax. And she says, we've got to talk. And this is where she sets the terms. This is where she negotiates with Joshua's spies. One of the commentaries uses the word parlay like a pirate. She is setting up the terms and saying, I protected you, now you've got to protect me. She establishes that, they're on, that she's on their side by speaking of their victories. She includes their escape from Egypt and what she had heard about the parting of the Red Sea. And then she says, now, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you will in turn deal kindly with my family. Now we see a little bit into the insight, we get a little insight into Rahab's motivation here. Because as much as she is clever and resourceful and uh, and smart and kind of smart-alecky, she's not actually in it just for her own survival. She's trying to secure the survival of her family. And actually, it goes on as she's talking about her family to say, my family and all who belong to them. She's got her people. Now, we don't know who they were. Perhaps they were employees, other sex workers and their families, but her people she's trying to protect. Her people are who she had in mind when she made the risky choice putting her life on the line, hiding those spies. And here she is, negotiating their safety. Even as she's negotiating, she's using tons of imperative words, commands, and she is letting these spies know what's up. They're at her mercy, she could turn them in. And she forces their hand to make an agreement with her, which is actually breaking Deuteronomic law. In chapter seven, verse two of Deuteronomy, it says, make no covenant with a Canaanite. But here they are, making covenant with Rahab, the sex worker, Canaanite woman, and entrepreneur. The spies agree. She instructs them further. She tells them how to survive, what they're up against. She says, go out the window, you'll go into the hills, You've gotta hide there for three days because that's how long it'll take for the king's men who are pursuing you to lose hope and come back. And so they make the deal to spare her family in the coming battle, to protect her and hers. They instruct her to hang a crimson cord from her window. And then they go, but not before promising again that they will abide by the contract, which she is really, really clear they must do if they wanna save their hides. So they leave out the window, and the crimson cord goes up. The spies are able to survive, and they return to Joshua. When the battle finally comes, Jericho is defeated. The walls that relegated Rahab to the outskirts crumble. Rahab, her family, and all that belonged to them, all those who were her kin, her chosen, They survived. And later in Joshua, it is written that Rahab's family still lives among Israel today. So what do we make of this story? This is not a clean story with easy, relatable heroes and clear-cut villains. We're supposed to be on Israel's side, as Rahab is eventually, but they are invaders. They are conquerors, they are colonizers. These spies are dopes that got caught along the way going to be serviced by sex workers instead of doing their job. And then there's Rahab. Rahab is powerful, commanding, making bold choices and with limited options. She's surviving, but she betrays her own city in order to do so, giving them up into the hands of the colonizers. As an outsider, she's taking power wherever it is available to her to survive. So I think that there are many possible takes here, but I want to offer you two. The first, this is purely a story of survival. It's possible that Rahab's whole life was already about survival. This is true for far too many of us. It's especially true for women. It's especially true for sex workers. And it's true for anyone who navigates a world not set up for them. The system that Rahab lived in benefited greatly from her and from her work and from her business, but punished her for it every step of the way. Her people, her own people, her city that she betrays may not really have done right by her in the first place, And she sees this inevitable defeat. She has heard about the Israelites. She's heard about the other cities they defeated. She heard that they have a god on their side that can part the waters. And so she makes a calculation. She's an oppressed woman just seeing her oppressors change names. So why not do everything she can to protect herself and those that she loves? Who is she betraying here? It's not her kin who she fights tooth and nail for. It's her earthly king, and who is that guy? So perhaps that's a betrayal that she can live with. Her priority here, survival and protection. She's knowledgeable and resourceful. She actually shares her knowledge of survival with the spies. These fools who were about to get themselves caught, she saved them and then taught them how to survive. She keeps them alive. Survival is holy work, friends. And it doesn't always feel enough because God wants us to thrive. And we've been talking about that for weeks, that God wants us to move from survival into thriving. But when the choice is survival or death, survival can be holy, blessed work. It is a calling into life, closer to life, into life from whatever systems of death are chasing us. Whenever I think about survival as a holy calling, I'm reminded of the book Nobody Cries When We Die by Patrick B. Reyes. He writes, For my community, our vocations start with survival. The world was not built for us, though it was built on the backs of our ancestors, the colonized, the oppressed, the enslaved, and other marginalized people. Perhaps this is a commentary on Jesus's identity as one who comes from ancestors who were colonized and oppressed and enslaved and marginalized. To say that Rahab's survival is holy, that she survives to live another day, to fight another day, to bring those into the world who will bring Jesus the liberator into the world. Perhaps for Rahab, survival is enough, and it is good. A second, perhaps more hopeful take, is that this is a story about hope and liberation. That Rahab is getting by in the world that she has, but she knows there is more life for her out there. There is more that she could celebrate, more that she could feel, more that she could do, in the world and for herself and the people that she loves. But she is relegated to the outskirts. She is an outcast in her own community, being pressed in on by other communities who cast her as an outcast even for being affiliated with the city that doesn't want her. This is not working for her. So she hears rumors of a people freed, of the sea parted, of pursuing armies drowned, of captives freed. What if it's real? What if she could be liberated? What if they're coming for her too? We know from the Passover story, when the blood of the lamb was painted over doors so that death would pass over, We know from Passover that liberation is not always safe or pretty or free of violence. The resisting powers of oppression that don't want liberation will resist unto death. And perhaps Rahab knows this. Perhaps Rahab is putting her hope in the Israelites, however flawed, to bring her a kind of exodus. A liberation. We have allusions to this in the crimson cord that she is supposed to hang from her window just like the blood of the lamb they painted over their doorways. She is spared and so are her loved ones, free into a new kind of being, into a new dawn with a different kind of hope. Now whether we go with that more hopeful and rosy story of anticipated liberation, or the story of a woman who survives along with her closest kin, Rahab's family does survive, does live to fight and love and liberate another day. She gives birth to a son named Boaz, who will marry Ruth, who we'll hear about next week. Another notable woman who paved the way for Jesus. And on and on until Jesus the true liberator is born. Part of Rahab's lineage. Rahab the one who longs to be free. Rahab surviving to fight another day for freedom and for life. Whatever Rahab represents to us today or tomorrow or the next day, she is a fixture in the ancestry of Jesus. She is one of ours to look up to and to look back to, to say, not that Jesus couldn't have come without you, but Jesus didn't come without you. Jesus came through you and your vivacity, your tenaciousness, your unrelenting fight for life, your choices, your boldness, And today, we stand in gratitude at Rahab, who prepared the way for the Lord. Will you pray with me? God of life, you come in unexpected ways and you refuse to keep your hands out of this messy world. We thank you for working your goodness even through twisted and cruel realities. We pray that you would give us the hope to survive, to fight for those we love, to choose our alliances wisely. God, we pray for the day when there are no more colonizers. We pray for the day when all are valued for who they are. And God, as we work toward that day, may we have the wisdom and the tenacity of the women who went before us and who paved the way for you to liberate us in love. Amen.